listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. And well, you sound great this morning. You look good this morning. Good to be back with you this week. Uh, about a hundred of us were uh, up in Wilburton, Oklahoma last week at Robbers Cave uh, for our fall family camp. Had a great time there and uh, thank the Lord for technology that allowed us to worship with you. Jace did a great job of uh, bringing the word last week and uh, it's good to be back. Uh, this particular Sunday every year uh, for some of us in ministry uh, is uh, we're a little sluggish. I don't know. I, the, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, I always feel like I'm waking up from like a winter hibernation or something. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's all the food that I ate over the last few days. But uh, at any rate, I hope that you had a good Thanksgiving. hope that you got to spend time with family and friends, enjoying good fellowship, good food, and certainly spent time thanking the Lord for His goodness and for who He is. It's good to see uh, some family members with us today, uh, visiting maybe from out of town, and so we're so glad that you are here as well. well. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 11 this morning. Romans chapter 11. We're going to be looking together at the last four verses of this 11th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. On Reformation Sunday, October the 31st, we launched a five-part sermon series called The Five Solas. It was on October the 31st of 1517, a little over 504 years ago now, that Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, sparking the Protestant Reformation. You may wonder, well, why, why that church? Was it just that church that uh, uh, was problematic? Uh, well, the Wittenberg Church in Germany, where Luther posted those 95 Theses, held one of Europe's largest collections of religious artifacts or holy relics uh, which were preserved as memento or as souvenir of the saints. And these relics uh, might be anything from a bone or a fragment of a bone, uh, maybe some part of clothing uh, by which that particular person was remembered. And these had been uh, rather piously <laughs> collected by Prince Frederick III, who was the ruler of Germany. And by 1509, uh, Frederick's collection... Uh, had, uh, had gotten over 5,000 relics, which allegedly included uh, such things as vials of milk from the Virgin Mary and straw from the manger of Jesus. And the relics were exhibited once a year for the faithful to, uh, to view with uh, naturally reverence and respect because of their great significance. And at the time, the people believed that the viewing of these relics would shorten uh, an individual's time of punishment for their sins in purgatory. Well, in 1509, uh, each devout visitor who donated toward the preservation of the Wittenberg Church received an indulgence. We've talked about indulgences a little bit over the last few weeks. This was basically favor granted by uh, the church. Uh, and they were granted, in this particular case, uh, 100 days per relic, meaning that they would spend 100 less days in purgatory, suffering for their sins before their sins were finally and fully forgiven and they were accepted into heaven. Well, by 1520, Frederick had increased his collection to over 19,000 relics, which allowed pilgrims viewing them to receive an indulgence that would allow them to reduce their time in purgatory significantly. People believed that if they supported keeping the relics of the saints, they would receive 
um, kind of vicariously some of the saints' goodness themselves and kind of a, a bank of good deeds, so to speak. And so those good deeds would also have an effect on their lives and they would live godly lives like the saints. And as a result, God would forgive their sins and eventually accept them into heaven. And so that, once again, is just a little historical snapshot of kind of where we find ourselves as we consider these five solas. And so by way of review, we have already looked at sola scriptura. It is the, the foundation or the basis uh, for what the Reformers were, were teaching at that time, that Scripture stands alone as our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. It is not Scripture plus anything else, plus tradition or anything of that nature. And it is in Scripture itself that it is revealed to us how a person is redeemed, how a person can be saved from the penalty of their sin. And that is by grace alone, sola gratia. It's by grace alone through Faith alone, sola fide. And then Jace last week covered for us solus Christus in Christ alone. It was the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ alone that provided salvation for sinful human beings like you and me. And today we're going to conclude this series with sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. So you put all those together and it tells us that Scripture alone is the foundation, the basis uh, for our salvation, that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, ultimately to the glory of God alone. Now remember, Luther did not nail uh, these five solas to the, the church door at Wittenberg. The five solas were actually kind of a collection or a summary of what the Reformers taught in the 15th and 16th centuries. And so they give an accurate summary uh, of what they were teaching, preaching, and they articulate for us the issues that uh, they were compelled uh, to protest. That's why it's called the Protestant, Protestant uh, Reformation. And so today, we come to sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And that simple phrase really sums up why we exist as creature. We exist to glorify our Creator. Almighty God, why all things exist for the glory of God. If you're familiar with the work and ministry of Pastor John Piper, who is now, I think, a pastor emeritus and uh, his ministry desiring God and so forth, I know that uh, he's been used in a profound way in a lot of people's lives um, uh, through his preaching and teaching ministry. And he would describe his ministry as what he calls Christian hedonism. Now that Sounds a little counterintuitive, but he would describe it this way. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. Fundamentally, all sin, all sin is a form of idolatry. It is essentially saying, as we fabricate little idols in our hearts, that God is not enough. I need this to fulfill me, to bring me happiness, to bring me joy, all of those sorts of things. And so if we are living for God and the glory of God alone, uh, then uh, that is the reason why we exist. And now I want us to turn our attention to Romans chapter 11. Let's look at verses 33 through 36, one of my favorite texts uh, in all of God's Word. Uh, certainly we know that Romans is, again, it's like the, the Mount Everest in the mountain range of Christian theology. And here in the last few verses of this 11th chapter, Paul writes, Oh the depth 
of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. There's a guy named Anthony Collins who lived in the 1700s. He was a justice of the peace and an English writer. He was a well-known deist. Deists believe in the existence of God, but reject uh, revealed truth based upon Scripture and instead base their beliefs, uh, many would say, on physical nature, on human reason, on personal experience, things of that nature. Uh, what they do is they, they fundamentally reject all supernatural events and instead believe that God does not interfere with human life and the laws of the universe He created. So they believe that God created the world and then essentially let it go like spinning a top on a table uh, and letting it wind down on its own without interfering with it. And so God is viewed by the deist as some distant uh, deity sitting out on the rim of the universe uh, having removed himself completely aloof from his creation. This belief became very prominent in England and in the United States in the 16 and 1700s. It was most prominent, oddly enough, among those raised as Christians who struggled to believe in the Trinity and the deity of, uh, of Jesus Christ and the miracles and the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, but these people did, in spite of those things, did believe that there was a God or uh, even one God. Well, one day, Anthony Collins was out walking and he crossed paths with another guy and he asked the guy, he said, where are you going? And this fellow answered, he said, I'm going to church, sir. And so Collins uh, said, well, well, what are you going to do there? And he said, well, I'm going to worship God. And so Collins asked him a question, a probing question. He said, is your God a great or a little God? And he said, both, sir. And so Collins naturally responded, well, how can he be both? And the man responded with this. He said, he is so great, sir that the heaven of heavens cannot contain him, and yet he is so little that he can dwell within me. Collins later declared that that simple answer had more effect on his mind than all the volumes that he had ever read about God and all the lectures that he had ever heard. The salvation of sinful human beings is the theme of the book of Romans. The scriptural foundation, again, for the five solas that we've been unpacking over the last five weeks is found here in the book of Romans. Salvation from sin comes from God's grace alone, by faith alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, ultimately to the glory of God alone. And so as Paul uh, closes the book of Romans, this letter, this epistle. He says that God chose the Jews, but they rejected Christ, and therefore God offered salvation to anyone who would believe that Jesus died for their sins. And it's in the 10th chapter, verse number 12, that he makes it clear there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. And then in verse 13 of that 10th chapter, Paul quotes from Joel chapter 2, Verse 32, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I have to pause here and ask, have 
You come to a place in your life where you realized you can't save yourself. You can't be good enough to earn God's favor. And so in faith, you turn to Jesus Christ as the only one who can forgive you of your sin and reconcile you to holy God. Have you called upon the name of the Lord in faith? Well, here at the close of Romans chapter 11, Paul breaks into, in light of what he's been teaching up to this point in this letter to the Romans, he breaks into what is called a doxology. A doxology to exalt the wisdom of God in bringing salvation to sinful human beings like Mike Lovely and like you. I want us to first consider, as we look at verse 33 of our text, divine wisdom. Divine wisdom. It's a wisdom that is described here as beyond our comprehension. You ever come to to, to have even just a limited understanding of something? I mean, conceptually, I I, I certainly am am rarely, if ever, the smartest guy in the room. And there are a lot of things, quite frankly, that blow my mind. Okay? Like, it still kind of blows my mind that you can flip a switch on the wall and a light comes on. Okay? And you can flip it up and the light goes off. I mean, there are things like that. I just, I, you know, I, I kind of have an understanding, a basic general understanding of how that works. But there's just so much that I don't understand, that I don't get. And there, there, there's sometimes when we, when we encounter something and we experience something, we say, I can't wrap my mind around that. That's a, that's a pretty common way for it to express that feeling, Right. By the grace of God, I've had the privilege of studying God's Word for most of my life now. On November the 24th, I celebrated my 47th spiritual birthday. And so, really since that time, in some form or another, I've been studying God's Word. And and I'm I'm still scratching the surface, y'all. I'm still scratching the surface. There's so many times, I was even reading this morning in a text, I'm like, "I, I don't know if I've ever seen that before. I don't know if I ever noticed that before. There's so much that I still don't understand. And so to, to just stop and think about the wisdom of God, a divine wisdom is beyond our comprehension. And what is wisdom? We probably have people in our lives, maybe it's a, a former teacher or maybe it's your grandparent or, or someone like that. You get, they were just wise. They were just wise. It shouldn't be confused with knowledge. There are a lot of people who have a lot of book knowledge. We would say that they're highly intelligent. They would do really well on a standardized test and that kind of thing. But you look at them and you go, they don't have enough sense to come in out of the rain. You know, like they, 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 they lack wisdom in many respects. And then on the other hand, some of the most wise people, the wisest people that we know and have encountered are, are not necessarily what we would call the smartest people in the world. And so it should not be confused, this wisdom and knowledge. These things go together. Someone said that knowledge is understanding that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing that you don't put it in fruit salad, right? Okay, so uh, th- th- there's a difference here. Wisdom, we, we oftentimes think of it as skill or expertise in a specific area of life. In the New Testament, the word wisdom really is fundamentally used in a couple of different ways. It is practical wisdom in the affairs of life. It's shown in forming the best plans and selecting the best means to accomplish those plans as, as they, so that they take place in the way that you intended and so forth. Spiritual wisdom is, is the understanding 
uh, and, and moral insight. I like the way that someone said it. Wisdom is really fundamentally having the ability to see life from God's perspective. From God's perspective, as incomplete as that may be. It is knowing what is morally right and wrong and choosing what, what is right. And so God's Word gives us His guidance in what is right and what is wrong. And Paul describes this wisdom here as unsearchable. Unsearchable because we cannot fully understand this kind of wisdom. I always say this, I am most alarmed by people who come off as if they've got God all figured out. You ever encountered one of those people? Those people scare me. <laughs> like, I don't have God all figured out. There's so many times in my life when I've come to different uh, crises and different things, and I look and I go, this just doesn't make sense to me. You ever thought to yourself, this just doesn't seem fair even? I know there are many times over the last 30-some years of being a pastor and preparing for a funeral, for example, I can think to myself, this just doesn't seem fair that this person is lying in that casket. I can think of other people who probably should be in that. It just doesn't seem fair that this person was just diagnosed with cancer and that person wasn't. And So many times, God's working and His wisdom it don't make sense. can't fully understand it. I can't wrap, wrap my brain around it. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, God tells us uh, that He thinks differently than we do. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Isaiah writes. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God is so wise that that wisdom cannot be measured. It can't be measured. We have ways of measuring intelligence these days. We have uh, college entrance exams and bar exams and boards and all the different testing mechanisms that we can use. And tests and measurements are used on a regular basis, on a daily basis, to determine how much a person knows, how much knowledge they possess in a particular field or, or whatever the case may be. <laughs> There's no test that could possibly in any way, shape, or form measure for us the wisdom of God. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And so he knows everything about what took place in the past. He knows everything about what is happening in the present. And, that, and he knows everything that will happen in the future. That's why we often say, as we look toward a very uncertain future, I wish I could stand here this morning and I could tell you what the year 2022 is going to look like. I wish I could tell you that the economy is going to rebound in a way that would be positive and that our taxes would go down. And I wish I could tell you a lot of stuff about the, the future, but I can't. But here's the thing. God's already there. God's already there. God already knows. That's how wise he is. He knows what is possible, and He knows what is impossible, and He has the ability to apply this infinite wisdom with perfect skill to accomplish, ultimately, His will. John Calvin said, The riches of God's wisdom are deeper than our reason can penetrate to. We are human, and God is divine. Inscrutable is the way that, that, Paul, that Paul writes it here. That is beyond tracing, untraceable. Because God doesn't leave us many times His footprints to follow. 
Instead, he wants us to just trust him. I, I think of Psalm chapter 77, verse 19, and referring to Israel leaving the land of Egypt, where it says, Your path led through the sea, though your footprints were not seen. God directed and intended that his people cross the Red Sea as he parted it for them by faith, trusting fully in him. I've often thought to myself, what, what would I have done if I were standing there with the children of Israel? The Red Sea in front of me, the pursuing Egyptian army behind me, and I, and I see the water heaped up on both sides and dry land. I'm thinking, if I get about halfway out there, that's all going to come crashing down. I, I would be thinking a lot of different things. I would like to think that I would have, by the grace of God, the ability to trust him and step out and, and, and cross the Red Sea. So many times we don't understand. We, we don't get it. We can't understand why God does certain things that he does. His actions and his decisions defy our human understanding. And any one of us in here this morning can identify a time or a season or an event that has transpired in our lives that just leave us scratching our heads. Things that, that we have to just trust God with. And I'm not sure that we'll ever fully understand it or that God intends for us to fully understand it. I know as a 12-year-old kid, I struggled mightily to understand why my mom passed away with cancer. I, there, I went through periods where I thought, God's just not fair. This is wrong. I was angry. All the different emotions. And, 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 and I still don't fully understand. And I have a little clearer picture in some respects in and, and ways that certainly God has used that in my life, I think, for His glory and for my good. But I can't say that I fully understand that. You know, God doesn't ask us to understand why he does what he does many times. He asks us to trust him even when we don't understand his will. Chuck Swindoll says it this way, God is too kind to do anything cruel, too wise to make a mistake, and too deep to be explained. The wisdom of God. It's a divine wisdom that is beyond our understanding. I want us to look secondly at verses 34 and 35, and I want us to see divine sovereignty. Needing no explanation. Now Paul here, I think he uses a little bit of sarcasm. Uh, I can identify with that. It's one of my spiritual gifts. Um, three questions are asked to help us understand the wisdom of God and planning and providing for our salvation, and all of them assume a negative answer. Number one, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord? So since God is omniscient and infinite, that is unlimited in his knowledge, and we are not, we are finite, we are limited in our knowledge, we cannot fully comprehend what God is thinking or understand what he does and why he does it. I don't know about you, but I would feel like if I could fully explain and understand God at every turn, that would be a pretty small God, don't you think? That's where faith comes in. Who has known the mind of the Lord? And then he asks the second question, who has been his counselor? <laughs> now, if I'm completely honest, there have been a number of times in my life where I felt like God needed me to serve him in an advisory capacity. <laughs> And, and even in my praying sometimes, I've had this thought of, you know, it, it, I probably need to inform God of this because he's obviously, he's missed this point. 
When we pray, we're not informing God of anything that he doesn't know. There will never be a time when, 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 when you, you inform God of something, he's going to be, oh, Mike, I, I had no idea. This is not going to happen. Nothing ever occurred to God. Nothing ever slipped his attention. And so we're not informing God of something that he doesn't know. He does not need us to serve him in an advisory capacity because God knows everything including how to wisely apply all that he's doing, all that he knows. Uh, no one could ever act as his advisor. doesn't need our limited knowledge to help him make the right decisions. I think sometimes we feel like, God, have you, have you considered this perspective? <laughs> no. Who has been his counselor? And then he asks this, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Since God is our creator and provider and redeemer, we are in debt to him. And there's nothing that you and I could ever do, even on our best day, even when we're on our best behavior, that could ever put God in our debt. Again, that's, that's fundamentally been what we've been unpacking in these five solas. There, there's never been a time when God was like, Mike, I pretty much owe you one, buddy. No, he doesn't. We owe everything that we have and everything that we are to God and to God alone. Augustine wrote this. He said, we count on God's mercy for our past mistakes. We count on God's love for our present needs. And we certainly count on God's sovereignty for our future. Our future. I don't remember exactly who said it or if this was even the way it was said originally. It's not an original thought with me. You know, one of the things that we quickly lose when we are given to worry and fear and anxiety is sleep, right? I don't know about you, but when your mind is consumed with something uh, and, and you're given to fear, what you're really doing is you're having a conversation with yourself about things you can't control, okay? It's like this pernicious loop, right? You ever get one of those pernicious loops in your thinking, and it's like you're just burning all this mental, emotional, spiritual energy over something that you ultimately can't control, Okay, but when you pray and you trust God and His sovereignty and His purposes and His plans and all those things, you are fully and completely trusting the sovereignty of God. And the way that it was said is this, the, the sovereignty of God is a soft pillow upon which to lay your head. Are you fully and completely trusting God and His sovereignty that He truly knows what's best in your life? And then I finally want us to look at verse 36 and see divine glory. Both now and forever. I love this 36th verse. Give your attention to it once again. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Temporal events. From him, because He is the original source of everything in life. God created everything there is and what we enjoy in life. And so we should thank Him for everything that He has given us from Him. From Him. I, I don't know what your morning typically looks like. Uh, I don't always get it right. Sometimes I go to Facebook before I go to the Word. Sometimes I'm given to other thoughts before I ever utter a, a word of prayer to the Lord in gratitude. But every day, we should be filled with gratitude for another day. 
that we get to enjoy God's beautiful creation, that we get to breathe His fresh air. It's another day of life that He's entrusted to us. We recognize that everything we have ultimately comes from Him. Now, we are prone in our sinfulness and in our pride to glorify ourselves. We can easily sit and recount our accomplishments and we can think about any awards and accolades that we may have received and maybe we can make a list of things for which we're proud and and kept in the right perspective, that's okay. But ultimately, everything we have, everything we've accumulated in this world is a gift from God. And nobody here who can truthfully say, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I know what people mean when they say that. No, no one here is a self-made millionaire or thousandaire or whatever you, you, know, you may be. I, no, no, God gives you even the energy and the, and the life to even go and earn a paycheck at the end of the week or, or whatever. It all comes from Him and then through Him because He is the sovereign controller of our lives. God is in complete control of everything that happens in our life. Uh, one of the, the, the times that I can recall being the most profoundly scared uh, was not too long after I had moved from the great state of Texas to the state of Ohio to go to seminary. I can remember one of the first times that I found myself completely out of control of my vehicle on an icy road. That's a scary, that's a scary feeling. Uh, I, I'm one of those kind of people who just kind of naturally likes to feel like I'm in control. I've never had a desire to, to be high or drunk or out of control. I just don't like that feeling. It's never appealed to me. Uh, I, don't, I don't like feeling like I'm out of my head or any, anything of that nature. And, and so in that moment when you're sliding on the ice and, and you feel like I, it doesn't matter what I do, I'm completely out of control. Well, check this out. As much as you may think you're in control of your life, you're not. You ultimately are not in control. One of the hardest things in the Christian life is relinquishing control to our sovereign God. I don't have to be in control of everything. Everything comes through my sovereign, loving, gracious God. And then it says to Him, because He's the ultimate goal of everything in life. Everything belongs to God because it was created for His pleasure. And so I should bring praise to God by my actions and in my attitudes. It ultimately is eternal glory. The word glory in scripture, it's an interesting word. It comes, it's the the, the Greek word doxa from which we get our word doxology. Doxology is not just a song at the end of the hymnal. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. A doxology is to give glory and honor and praise to God. And so our lives should be a living doxology to the Lord. Giving Him the glory that only He deserves. Revelation chapter 5 verse 13 says this, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. God should receive the glory in everything because everything comes from Him and through Him. And the focus of even our thoughts should be continually God-centered and not self-centered. 
The reformers, they believed that our salvation from beginning to end was the result of what God has done, not anything that we can do. Therefore, God alone is to receive all the glory for our salvation, not anything that we have done to earn it. I think a lot of times we view salvation, if we're not careful, as like a group project back when you were in school. You know, if you got paired up with certain people, you're like, well, I know who's going to be pulling the load on this project. It's going to be me, right? I think sometimes we think somehow salvation is sort of a group project where God's going to pull the biggest part of the load, but I got to do my part too, right? And it doesn't work that way. It's all of God. And that's why He alone should receive the glory. Hymn writer Fanny Crosby expressed it in the words of a hymn, 1872. To God be the glory, great things He has done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son. And other inspired writers have come along uh, after that and have written a similar refrain. I think of Andre Crouch expressed it in his song, My Tribute. To God be the glory for the things He has done. With His blood He has saved me. With His power He has raised me. To God be the glory for the things He has done. So as a doctrine, what does this mean? It means that everything that is done is to be for God's glory to the exclusion of my self-glorification and pride. There's a tool that we've... uh, pointed our families to particularly. It's called the New City Catechism. A great tool. I think there's some copies out here in the library, and I'd encourage you to grab one of those. And uh, They're not very expensive at all, just a, a, a nice little booklet. Uh, and, and catechism, by the way, is not a bad word. I know it maybe wouldn't be called a Baptist word necessarily, but it's, it's basically a way of, of understanding biblical truth, biblical doctrine. So the New City Catechism is based upon the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it says this, the chief end of man is to what? Is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Regardless of what you do for a living, Regardless of what you do Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, or, or whatever it is that you do to earn a living, you are to ultimately do it for the glory of God. Be the best at whatever you do for the glory of God. I've often said it this way. I think Christians ought to be the best employees. We ought to be the best workers. And, and as you conduct your business, you should do it with integrity and with honesty and all those things that would ultimately bring honor and glory to God. However menial the task may be, do it to honor God. R.C. Sproul said this, everything that God does, everything that God allows, everything that He ordains is the, in the supreme sense for His glory. It is also true that while God seeks His own glory supremely, man benefits when God is glorified. So how do we do that? Practically speaking, well, we do it in our walk. In our walk. Whenever you see the word walk in Scripture, it rarely is referencing uh, putting one foot in front of the other to move from point A to point B. It's most often talking about the way in which we live. That's why we say our walk with the Lord. Do you have a genuine 
walk with the Lord. I'm not asking you, do you know about Him? Do you know of Him? But are you walking with Him? Are you becoming more like Him every day? It should bring glory to God, the God who saved us. We honor Him by becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And we see that manifested in the book of Galatians chapter 5 in what we call the fruit of the Spirit. It's evidence of a walk with God. We do it in our work. Again, our work should bring glory to God who created us. And sometimes we have this, this, this weird um, division between the secular and the sacred. And so, you know, Monday through Friday, even Saturday, I have this secular part of my life. And then on Sunday, I have this sacred part of my life. And that shouldn't be the case. Even our work should be viewed as worship. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And then our worship. Our worship. In First Chronicles chapter 16, it says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship is to glorify God for who He is. His character, His nature. Loving, kind, holy, forgiving, sovereign, just, righteous. We could go on and on and on and on. And so when we gather, as we have this morning, our worship really is a response, isn't it? It's a response to who God is and for what He is doing and has done in our lives and by faith what He will do in the future. All glory to God. Johann Sebastian Bach, great composer, was born in Eisenach, Germany, the same town in which Martin Luther was born 200 years earlier in 1483. Oddly enough, he attended the same school as Luther and was greatly influenced by Martin Luther's legacy in the Reformation. His father was an organist at St. George's Church and taught him to play the violin and the harpsichord. His uncles were uh, accomplished uh, musicians as well. They played as church organists and as court musicians and so forth. His mother and father both died when he was 10 years of age. And he moved in with his, with his older brother, who was also a, a church musician. And there he copied and he studied and he performed music and received valuable teaching from his brother and playing various instruments. Well, during his life, Bach became famous as an organist because he played it so well, but he was not particularly well known as a composer, even though he composed hundreds of pieces of music. He composed both secular and sacred works for choir, for orchestra, for individual instruments. Just an amazing musician. Bach said that the aim of all music was to be to the glory of God and that his purpose in life was to create music dedicated to the glory of God. And so what he did was he initialed his blank manuscripts before he began to compose a piece of music with the letters I-N-J in the name of Jesus. And when the manuscript was completed, the piece was finished, he would initial it S-D-G. Sole Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. You ever feel like sometimes in your life that God is putting together a piece of music maybe? 
And there are great crescendos and decrescendos and all of those things that make up a dynamic piece of music. I mean, the different events, the different experiences of our lives, the people with whom we cross paths, all of the different things make up the fabric of who we are in our lives. And if you've lived any time at all, you know what it is to live on the mountaintop and to experience great joy. And you know what it is to go through a deep, dark valley and disappointment and all of those things, all ordained by God. Ultimately, it's S-D-G. All of it. Sole Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a wisdom that we can't comprehend. As hard as we may try, as much as we might like to fully understand what you are doing in our lives, we're limited. Your word tells us that there is coming a day when we are glorified and we will know as we are known. Lord, until that day when our faith becomes sight, we trust you completely. And what you are orchestrating in and through our lives on the good days and the bad. On the days when the bills are paid and the family's healthy and everything seems great. And on the days when that's not the case. We ultimately want you to receive the glory in and through it all. God, I pray that you would continue to work in our lives in such a way as we submit to you, to your wisdom, to your sovereignty, that it all be for your glory and your glory alone. If there's anyone here today, Lord, that has never trusted you as Savior and Lord, I pray that today, by your Holy Spirit and the power of your word, they'd be drawn to you. Lord, may our lives bring honor and glory to you and to you alone. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.